Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. The other day, as happens sometimes, I found myself at Walmart. I mean, I went to Walmart. I didn't find myself in some larger sense at Walmart, but I found that I had to go to Walmart to get some things that I couldn't find anywhere else. So yeah, I'm in Walmart. I'm wandering the aisles of late capitalist detritus. And, you know, it's a typical Walmart scene humanity teetering on the brink, drowning in aisles upon aisles of its own plastic chotch, people wandering with glazed eyes under the fluorescent glare, filling shopping carts with more and more and more stuff, that kind of scene. And the sound system is blaring, this is the good life by One Republic. Walmart, pandemic, you know, this is the good life. Sounds reasonable. I've been wanting to do an episode on reason for a while now, and then it hit me. Walmart is the perfect example of what I want to say about reason. Because if you look at it in one way, Walmart is the very epitome of reason. It's reasonable that we would want a one-stop destination for all of our daily household needs, and that this one-stop destination would be organized in a way designed to make the experience of being there convenient and efficient. The parking lot is a big rectangle cut into individual spaces for each of our cars to maximize space and efficiency. The building itself is laid out in a big grid of aisles and each aisle is organized by an area of the house, right? So you could find things for your kitchen here, and then things for your living room here, and then things for your garden here, and things for your bathroom and your pantry and storage containers in the storage section and entertainment in the entertainment section. Everything is neatly, rationally organized, and each item is somehow designed to make your life better. So if you feel like lying down, there's a mattress for that, and you've got something to throw away. Well, there's a trash bin for that. You've got a stomach ache. There's a chalky pink liquid for that. Neat and tidy, something for every human need, all arranged in a rational layout built for your shopping convenience. But of course, if we look a little deeper, the larger system in which Walmart operates may not be so rational. For example, is there a rational reason at this point that if you live in Boise, Idaho, your drinking water should come from Fiji? Is there a rational reason for 50 varieties of bottled water in plastic bottles at all when water bubbles up out of the ground? Is there a rational reason why we really need a new brand of organic corn chip when there's already 100 brands of organic corn chip out there? Start to look deeper and all those aisles of products exist within a larger system that is deeply irrational. Products that poison the environment for thousands of years, products that prioritize immediate short-term fixes over long-term sustainability, products that perpetuate the notion that life is about being as comfortable as possible all the time, the replacement of economies of context with economies of pillage for the sake of short-term gain, all to serve a larger worldview that is the opposite of rational. For it is the most basic of all logical premises that to keep cranking out limitless amounts of consumer stuff on a planet with limited resources isn't going to work. It's irrational. So yeah, Walmart is a framework of rationality within a system that is ultimately totally irrational, that is based on an irrational notion of what the purpose of human life is. I've been thinking about the word reason a lot recently. There are a lot of calls for us to return to it in today's world. And in a 
post-fact world in which an increasing number of people believe in truly epic conspiracies, and the President of the United States has a spiritual advisor who speaks in tongues and summons angels from Africa, and there's a deliberate widespread movement to discredit climate science, and a whole lot of people think that a virus that's killed over a million people is a hoax, the calls to return to reason are natural. But if we're framing it in terms of a return, then when exactly was this age of reason? What is usually considered the age of reason, 17th to 19th century Europe, saw some of the worst colonial atrocities ever committed in the name of fundamentally irrational pursuits. Greed, pillaging, nationalistic fervor. And this fervor was not in spite of rational science. It went hand in hand with rational science. The age of reason was dominated by a science that was not simply neutral rational, but that created and reinforced colonial tropes about primitivism and otherness and Western superiority that are still with us today. The fact is that as much as we hold reason as an aspirational value, we do so within an overarching system of relentless consumption that is anything but rational. Even modern science uses the methodology of rational analysis to forward discoveries that are ultimately driven by irrational motives within an irrational system. So using the tools of rational analysis to push a new drug or addictive technology or yet another environmentally toxic product in order to fulfill the goal of maximizing profit in the short term, is that rational? Or does it simply mean that one is using reason as a tool for feeding larger irrational impulses and addictions? Because ultimately, the most rational analysis of the human situation might lead to the conclusion that the societies that have existed the longest in the greatest harmony with nature, that unlike rationalist modern civilization have not all but secured their demise within a few centuries, that these are the real rationalists. If this is the case, then the Paleolithic, not the modern era, was the true age of reason. For to see watersheds as sacred, to view human purpose as custodial rather than exploitative, to find a harmonic balance that results in tens of thousands of years of cultural continuity, to eat what is offered up by the earth in its time and place, these may be the most reasonable propositions of all. And calls to just be rational fall somewhat flat in a world that has never been governed by reason. By all means, let's use reason as a methodology that has application in certain circumstances. Let's listen to climate science and vote the deniers out of office and make decisions informed by reason. Let's establish sources for our information and then trust those sources. I am all for these applications of reason. But to pretend that human issues are going to be solved simply by the call to be rational is to ignore human nature itself. Ultimately, we need more than dispassionate analysis of facts in an era in which the fundamental problems facing us are a result of deep addictions, unmet wants, rifts of alienation, and a profound separation between ourselves and the natural world. A separation that has divorced human beings from the organs of perception and feeling that once guided us through forests and imaginal spaces, and through how to navigate our relations with each other and with the forces of nature. There are impulses and drives at work that, when bereft of healthy expression, find expression in destructive ways. There is a need for the ritualized expression of these deep primal currents. Don't tell Descartes or Yuval Harari, but there are deeper alignments at work in the world than us in alignment with our own thinking brains. As Native American activist Russell Means once said, there are forces at work in the world that the modern mind can't even comprehend. True reason tells us that we are part of a vast interconnectedness, and that we didn't create this world but are a small part of it. Therefore, true reason might tell us that finding harmony with this world of which we are integrally a part is the most important human endeavor of all. When we really look at the situation, true reason might ultimately tell us that pursuits that have long been deemed irrational, structuring societies around a living, breathing, ritual core, enacting forms of regular ritualized cathartic expression, telling stories that reinforce deep access to the imaginal, dancing and singing and drumming and myth-telling, forwarding a vision of life in which we are deeply linked to forces of nature, to lunar cycles, to understanding movements of nature over long periods of time, basing decisions on empathetic feeling and innate knowing. Such 
irrational pursuits that reprioritize harmonious relationship as the pinnacle of all human purpose may be the only rational way to get us out of the mess we're in. So, when exactly was the age of reason? Today, on The Emerald. There's a meme that's been going around for a while now. It's a quote from former director of the Natural Resources Defense Council, Gus Speth, who said this about some of the environmental problems facing humanity. Quote, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. So one of the things I take from this is knowing all the facts doesn't automatically mean you change. Knowing all the facts doesn't mean you change, right? So look at an addict. An addict can be presented with all the facts, all the reasons why they should change, all the reasons why to keep going down the road they're going is insanity, is probably suicide, and they still won't change. I knew an addict once who was given a choice of jail or rehab, and he chose jail because he knew he could still get high in jail. The facts, of course, can be helpful on a superficial level, so the addict might hear the facts and think, I know, that makes total sense. But deeper behavioral patterns have momentum. There are rhythms at play. There are tides. There is a want at the heart of it all that is not satiated with facts. The tug of these forces is usually much greater than anything anyone, even their closest friend or relative, could say rationally to make them change their mind. Because it's not just a matter of changing one's mind. It's a matter of learning how to navigate much deeper forces to address deeper longings. So then, it's not a coincidence that of all the treatments available for addicts, the ones that look at addiction as merely a set of symptoms and try to clinically treat the symptoms one by one have some of the lowest success rates out there. Why is that? You'd think we should be able to medically address symptom by symptom the issue, right? And yet, we can't, because the forces at work are deeper than that. In his book, Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior, Leonard Mladeno says, quote, Indeed, as our models of the brain progress, rationality finds itself with less and less breathing room. That's not to say we aren't capable of rational thought, of coolly weighing the pros and cons of a purchase or a relationship or a trip abroad. But when we try to employ the most logic-bound parts of our brain— Psychologists and neuroscientists are discovering it's incredibly easy for us to fool ourselves into thinking that we're being rational, when in reality there are powerful, submerged cognitive forces actually guiding us, end quote. So yeah, why can't we just collectively decide to listen to climate scientists? Why can't we just act rationally? Because the issues we face aren't just neatly categorized thoughts and ideas and theories that we can pick and choose from the way one would choose the right food processor at Walmart. The governing forces of human behavior are feelings and impulses, forces that live within deeper oceans that guide us in ways we don't even know we're being guided so in a world governed by such forces, let's just get back to reason may not be as pressing a call as we need to treat this as what it is, which is an addiction. And make no mistake, the situation humanity is in right now is addiction. You don't think we're governed by addictive forces? Take a trip to Times Square in New York City sometime and behold the great altar of addictive consumption. 
Check out how it's constructed, just like a grand temple would be, how it is in fact a hall of worship, how the lights and sounds and sensory input and size and scale, it's cathedral-like. It makes gods of celebrities and Disney characters and of the products themselves, capped by a giant steaming cup of noodles at the pinnacle of the cathedral spire. We worship consumption. We set it at the height of all possible human achievements, proclaim forward progress and unlimited economic growth as our reason to live. And then, starting from this most irrational of premises, we work our way backwards into reason so that all of our mechanisms of rationality exist ultimately to reinforce a grand, irrational, addictive premise. Stuff makes you happy. Sometimes I go to stay at an ashram in India, and it's a very simple existence. There's no internet, very simple food, small portions, very basic room, a bed and a candle. And those first few days, I'll tell you, those first few days of simple bland food and no food choice and no internet and no distraction, those are tough. There are layers and layers of winding down that need to happen. Like, I don't even notice how addictive life in the modern world is until I'm away from it. And when I'm away from it, I can feel these layers and layers start to relax and subside and give way. These layers of very subtle addiction, right? And I can start to see when I get some distance from it that the engine that drives this modern lifestyle forward, always forward, right? Always forward, is addiction. Yet, somehow, in the midst of this world in which we obsessively crank out more and more and more and more, and we have vast arsenals of weapons pointed at each other, poised to go off at any moment, right? And the experts are melting down on live TV, literally melting on live TV. And Jeff Bezos has more wealth than half the world combined. We still have a sense of a great rationality guiding it all. And how is it that in the midst of this postmodern chaos, we still think that society is plodding along according to the laws of reason? Well, here's my theory on that. It's the neckties. Hear me out. In the 1800s in colonial India, there lived a great educator and philosopher named Ishwar Chandra Vidyasagar. He was so impressive in his knowledge and dedication to educational reform that he was invited to have dinner one night with the British at one of their royal clubs. He did so, and they all took their seats at the table. And as the guest of honor, Vidyasagar was expected to take the first bite. But instead, he just sat there, talking to his tie. And as you can imagine, this made a room full of 19th century British colonial officers and ladies rather uncomfortable. And finally, one of them said, my dear chap, what are you doing? And Vidyasagar explained that he had actually arrived at the club earlier wearing Indian dress, a dhoti, and he hadn't been let in. He'd had to go back home and change into a suit and tie in order to get into the club. So, he surmised out loud, the British hadn't actually invited him as the guest of honor. They had invited his tie. They were much more interested in what his tie had to say than him. Trust me, those ties provide a powerful veneer. A good suit and tie will make the most irrational of premises seem rational. The dress and speech cadence and perpetuation of accepted vernacular by our leaders has been meant for quite some time to convey professionalism, stability, trust us, we've got everything under control, all based foremost in a veneer of reason. Listen to us, we're reasonable men. I mean, we must be. We're wearing ties. The great illusion of the necktie is part of what has allowed for a most irrational worldview, that of unlimited consumption and pillaging at the expense of the planet, of community, of our elders, of our children, allowed this worldview to dominate while maintaining a totally reasonable veneer. Look at those leaders. They couldn't possibly be addicts. They're all wearing suits. They all have similar haircuts. They must be the voices of reason.
Often when I think of reason, I think of British accents, don't you? If anyone has been seen as purveyors and champions of reason, it's the British. The age of reason was the age of British domination, British thought, writing, dress, invention, all across the world. The sun never set, as the old saying went, on the British Empire. And in the British mind, one of the primary British exports was what? Reason. Rationality. That civilizing force that brought order to Zulu nations and decorum to backwards tribes and was a beacon of hope for humanity. And yet, at the height, the very height of the Age of Reason, the British crown, which portrayed itself as the light of reason itself, was making most of its money off of what? Addiction. That's right, opium addiction specifically. The British crown sold tons upon tons upon tons of opium to China, 9,000 tons in a single year. And when the Chinese rose up to reject the flood of opium that was wreaking havoc on their people, what did the crown do? Declare war, a war which they won. They sacked the summer palace with all its libraries and treasure troves of art, burning it, most irrationally, I might add, since they were burning their own loot, burning this architectural jewel to the ground along with all its treasures. And then they forced even more opium on the Chinese populace and increased the price. Progress, it seems, is less driven by reason than addiction because, well, progress is addictive. The forward-thinking mind is addictive. There's a reason drugs are such good business and such good businessmen are drug dealers because progress, consumption, and addiction are very closely intertwined. Where does reason play into it? Only in who is ultimately seen as a thug and who is seen as a good businessman. Because, of course, in the end, the Avon Barksdales of the world are locked up. That's a reference to the HBO show The Wire, for those who don't know. While the billionaire Upper East Side Sacklers, who push tons and tons of opioids on the youth of America, are not. And the British Crown, which made most of its money through pillaging sanctioning the butchering of native populations, sacking India of her treasures, exporting rice while millions starved, forcing the Chinese at gunpoint to buy opium, the British crown is somehow, against all reason, seen as an example of noble, rational ideals. Clearly, it must be the neckties. So apologies to any British fans out there who are enamored of the crown. Of course, the flip side of this is that narratives of reason are also subverted from within. One of the best-selling books in England during the so-called Age of Reason was a book on fairy stories called The Blue Fairy Book. Its sequels, The Red Fairy Book, The Green Fairy Book, The Yellow Fairy Book, you get the idea, smashed previous sales records. The poets of the Age of Reason were the Romantics. Wordsworth and Hopkins spoke openly of animism in an age supposedly governed by empirical evidence. Blake sent forth a vision of nature and imagination as holy and technological progress as evil that ran directly contrary to the Victorian rational progress narrative. Samuel Taylor Coleridge penned his great work Kubla Khan while on opium. Jane Austen wrote books where the spontaneity of young girls outdueled the stuffy rationalism of high British society. Even at the time, the rational as worldview to end all worldviews was a matter of deep scrutiny. And even now, one of Hollywood's favorite pastimes is to take the wind out of the sails of stuffy rationalists with characters who embody more intuitive spontaneity. Because, as the poem goes, feeling is first. Since feeling is first, said E. E. Cummings, who pays any attention to the syntax of things? will never wholly kiss you, wholly to be a fool while spring is in the air. My blood approves, and kisses are a better fate than wisdom. Uh, 
A short century after the age of reason, and the greatest rational minds in science would be clamoring to create a weapon that could destroy the entire world. Here's a question: What is reason's curious relationship with war? How is it that at the supposed height of humanity's rational prowess, the 20th century, we engaged in two world wars that brought untold environmental destruction and the death of millions of people, all for what a few acres of bombed-out ground? The idea that scientific reason alone is going to usher in an age of peace ignores hundreds of years of history in which scientific reason has been directly intertwined with war and destruction. It's often said that religion and war have gone hand in hand, and they have. But science and war have also gone hand in hand. Like the scientific rational mind that designs the most effective landmine, knowing full well that it's going to kill civilians. Like what's often seen as the pinnacle of scientific achievement itself, the creation of the atomic bomb. In an episode of his Hardcore History podcast, Dan Carlin interviews four-star general and former Air Force Chief of Staff Merrill McPeak. They spend a good deal of the interview talking about geopolitics, balance of power, Middle East policy, and all through the interview, the general presents views that are quite rational. They make a lot of sense. I agreed with him actually on a lot of his foreign policy views. And then at the end of the interview, the general says something very quick and very interesting. He says. I love combat. Combat is invigorating. He says, "I'm a professional warrior. I enjoyed every minute of it." Yeah. So here's a general saying, "I love combat," and so I've built this massive structure, all organized in a great rational hierarchy, making use of the best science of the day. Making use of all these bright, rational minds, all in order to ultimately perpetuate something that fulfills some deep, primal desire for a feeling, for invigoration, for intensity, for peak experience, experience on the edge, for a threshold to be crossed and things to be in their rawest state of all, and for men to have to navigate that state well and get through to the other side in triumph, or something like that. In his series Supernova of the East, Dan explores the complicated relationship that people have with combat. He talks about how combat soldiers hate combat, yet they come to crave it, to love it even. How frontline combat soldiers experience a state of being that is highly addictive. It's the zone. Every day spent on the edge takes on significance. One combat soldier talks about how everything is heightened. Realer than real, bathing in water is like bathing for the first time, possibly the last. Things have a shine to them that they don't have in daily life. So anyone who listens to this podcast regularly recognizes this. He's talking about the trance state. He's talking about rupture, crossing the threshold into the state of heightened suprasensory flow. In other words, combat fulfills the need that intense cathartic ritual once fulfilled. It harnesses intense and primal needs and longings, and takes the warrior practitioner to a place of presence and immediacy that we deeply crave. So let's put it simply: people need regular cathartic ritualized intensity, and if they don't have that cathartic ritualized intensity, they will find ways to get it. Up to and including slaughtering each other in the process, they will come up with a hundred rationalizations for why to go to war to ensure that access to this state of cathartic ritualized intensity is preserved. This is how strong the drive for cathartic ritual intensity is. The Aborigines will say that men need this ritual intensity more than women because women have it built in through the fertility cycle and the birth process. This is why men in many societies go through excruciatingly painful initiations and regular rituals that involve intensity—the intensity of deprivation, the intensity of physical exertion, of drumming and dancing and fasting for days at a time. Sometimes the intensity of deliberately inflicting pain on the body. I've seen people impale their tongues and insert hooks into their backs in order to get into this state. So this is why the idea that simply listening to science will somehow get us beyond the primal need for ritualized intensity falls short. If anything, we will just use the tools of rational science to enact that intensity in unhealthy ways. 
This is also why modern therapeutic models in which we talk our way out of trauma or receive a few sessions of bodywork that are supposed to transform trauma may not be enough. It's why Tyson Yonkaporta says we need something meatier than a mindfulness course. We have to address the deeper forces at work. We have to address the need for ritual intensity. We have to address longings. And to address them means to somatically enact, to ritually enact over and over again, not to try to rationalize our way out. In the absence of this ongoing cathartic ritualized expression of intensity, Deep forces of the human psyche can be harnessed and turned towards evil ends. Adolf Hitler talked himself and those around him into a frenzy in his trance-induced jig and fueled the Nazi blitzkrieg with addictive drugs. The Nazi conquest was driven by methamphetamines, history has shown, and their chaotic romp through Europe mirrors the exact cycle of the drug's influence. An omnidirectional surge merely for the sake of surging, like a meth addict obsessively cleaning because they have to have something to do with all of that restless energy. A frenetic surge detached from its own emotional body, totally void of empathy, which eventually collapses in spectacular fashion when the drug wears off. And many former Nazis report the feeling of being in a kind of trance. And the period after the war was as if waking up, as if they had been at the mercy of powers and forces of consciousness greater than themselves. This is a force that's not simply reasoned away. It's what performance artist Spalding Gray referred to as, quote, an invisible cloud that circles the world and lands on places like Iran, Beirut, Germany, Cambodia, America. In the lead-up to the 2020 election, candidate Marianne Williamson spoke of dark psychic forces in reference to Donald Trump, and she was mocked by rationalists everywhere. Most of the mocking, incidentally, took place on Twitter, a platform that is ultimately itself addictive. Dark psychic forces that's so irrational people laughed. All the while in the spell of a glowing interface that is specifically designed to trigger the most addictive parts of their brains. But surely something like the U.S. election had nothing to do with psychic forces, with deep primal longings, with unharnessed intensities. The 2016 election was just an aberration, right? And Trump was aided by the Russians, and people just didn't like Hillary. And this time in 2020, people would surely come to their senses after four years of Trump presidency, and Biden would win in a landslide, wouldn't he? Certainly there couldn't be that many irrational people in America. And then 73,792,443 people voted for Trump. He got 11 million more votes than he got the first time. How is that rationally possible? Primarily because what we call rationality is not what drives elections. More and more studies show that subconscious forces are what really drive the vote. So Leonard Mladeno says, quote, we think we're voting for politicians because we agree with their policy positions, but there's strong evidence to suggest that we're swayed by their looks. We're swayed by what we feel. And now, of course, the election of Joe Biden has been heralded as a return to reason. And trust me, when Biden gave his acceptance speech, I was extremely happy to hear what many of us would call a voice of reason on a public stage. It had been a while. In that speech, incidentally, Biden invoked angelic forces and hymns of eagles and divine light and was not mocked in the same way that Marianne Williamson was when she spoke of dark psychic forces. Why, I wonder. So to be clear, I'm very glad that Joe Biden is president. Biden certainly represents relief from a nonstop barrage of ignorant hate and divisiveness. But we also have to be a little careful of thinking that Joe Biden's brand of neoliberal capitalism represents some great turn towards the rational, simply because he'll be able to speak in coherent sentences. Because, again, the fundamental premise of the current paradigm is still irrational. We cannot continue to consume at the rate we're consuming. That's the simplest logic. We cannot continue to value unlimited growth on a finite world. 
So we have to be careful of getting into the mindset of thinking that the only issue at play is that we're rational and they're not. All of us exist within a world of deep forces that we navigate at a level that is not what we term rational. All of us exist within a context, a late capitalist world, that is by no means rational. And in such a world, are untapped, unharnessed, undirected energies, unmet longings going to be funneled and directed by those who figure out how to do so? Absolutely. And we're not above that. Certainly, people like Bill Clinton and Obama use their charisma and their ability to move and sway to lull people into thinking everything was proceeding along normally. And meanwhile, we were still hurtling towards global environmental meltdown at 100 miles an hour. We were lulled to sleep, too, by a more recognizably articulate and rational figure in a necktie, who still made the fundamentally irrational seem rational. So a Biden worldview, while certainly more welcome, still does not get us to the heart of the matter, which is addiction. America needs to admit addiction. The heart of the matter is that the whole premise of modern civilization right now is addictive, is deeply irrational. A Biden presidency won't contain that much-needed wake-up call, which is this. My friends, we are longing for something that we cannot get through material accumulation. We are longing for something that we cannot get through relentless economic growth. We are longing for something that we cannot get through checking all the boxes on a spreadsheet. We are longing for something that is deeper than cultural victories around what words we use. We are longing for something that hating the other will never provide. We are longing for something that the latest technology can't give us. We are longing for something that no amount of money or comfort or status can give us. Deep longings need to be addressed and they can't be addressed the way we've been going about it. They must be addressed by looking at how human beings have successfully navigated such forces for thousands of years. We think about reason, and we may see in our minds something like Spock from Star Trek, the walking embodiment of rational thought, pointy ears, pointy eyebrows, bowl cut and all. At the end of the 1982 film Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Spock sacrifices himself for the greater good. Ship, out of danger. Yes. Don't grieve him. Just logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. As he says, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. Sounds rational, right? But the exact same dispassionate logic could lead to a very different conclusion, too. It could lead to Thanos, the Marvel supervillain who arrives at the cold calculation that there are far too many people inhabiting the universe, and 50% of them need to go. This type of detached reason can lead equally to compassion or to genocide. Because ultimately reason needs to be more than cold, dispassionate analysis of facts. This vision of reason in which we are presented with data and make all our decisions accordingly is an impossible vision. It's simply not the reality of the human experience. It isn't reasonable to expect that humans will do this, nor is it reasonable to do this, nor is it how humans operate. More and more brain studies are coming out that show that a healthy brain is a brain that feels, that imagination is essential to healthy brain function. And that ultimately, the old dichotomy between reason and emotion, reason and intuition, reason and feeling, left brain, right brain, may not be how our brains function at all. 
So if a return to reason has been historically seen as removing emotion and feeling from decisions, science may now be finally showing that a return to reason is actually putting feeling back into decisions. So to truly return to reason isn't just to trust scientists or know where you get your facts from. To truly return to reason means a deep re-evaluation of what our uttermost purpose is, what life is for, why we're here, and what makes the most sense as far as a way forward for humanity on this planet. Reason might tell us that if all the evidence is in that the relentless pursuit of stuff doesn't result in happiness, then we need a deep reprioritization. As the Dalai Lama says, if we want to achieve a deeper level of happiness than material goods can bring, we cannot neglect our inner development. This type of reason might ask us to deeply evaluate our place within the great cycles of time and nature and shift our thinking from our immediate impulses to a longer-term vision. This type of reason might conclude that we are, in fact, a civilization in the throes of deeply addictive cycles, and that those cycles aren't going to be treated symptomatically or by simply knowing the facts, that we have to go to the root of the issue. Still to this day, the single most effective program for treating addiction is the AA program, which recognizes addiction as a spiritual malady, a deep hole, a longing to be full. Such deep-seated longing requires, as Gus Speth said, a cultural and spiritual solution. A spiritual solution may in fact be the only rational solution. And again, since reason is a methodology rather than an ultimate worldview, there's nothing contradictory in rational minds recommending spiritual solutions. Science and spirituality aren't mutually exclusive, said scientist Carl Sagan. To say that they are belittles them both. Fundamentally, this type of reason might show us that if we want to survive as a species, we need to emulate those peoples who have a longer history of continuous cultural survival than any others. And this involves a deep shift in what the Western scientific world has historically considered rational. Ritual, initiation, direct worship of and interaction with the forces of nature, practices that harness the intensity of the human experience, that meet the need for peak experience, that catapult us into heightened states of perception, that help us pound our feet and sweat it out so that we don't need to, you know, kill each other, practices that place the tree and the spring in context in our psyches and our lives so that we don't need to cut down the tree or drain the spring. These may be the most rational human pursuits of all, these are activities, practices, mindsets, cultural frameworks that reinforce interconnectedness rather than increase separation. When Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, dropped acid with Aldous Huxley, he felt first and foremost an extreme sense of connectedness. It may be the height of reason to begin more seriously exploring entheogenic plant medicines that have led people through the mechanisms of feeling and heightened perception to that most rational of conclusions, we are all connected. So the most rational of human beings would be the one who understands and embodies and enacts this interconnectedness, rather than just knows it as a theory. The Huichol peyote shaman in his scintillant rainbow garb and his intimate knowledge of the forces that exist within and without consciousness may ultimately be a greater voice of reason than the man in the suit and tie who thinks those forces secondary or non-existent yet lives under their sway unknowingly every single day. Those that understand natural forces, animal forces, and how to interact with them in harmony may in fact be operating more rationally than those who consider such forces irrelevant or who try to suppress them. Classical Western philosophy gave us a worldview in which desire was tamed by reason, in which the animal nature of the human being was subdued by a higher rational being. Yet, such philosophies tended to come from societies that were also brutal. They seemingly had no outlet for intensity, for heat, for tapas, as it's called in Sanskrit, for the forces that build and swirl within the human being. They had no outlet other than killing each other. 
Contrast that with the highly developed rituals of channeled intensity that have existed in many societies for many thousands of years, in which the heat is directed, cultivated, spent, safely, in which the animal is a means of embodiment, what Claude Levi-Strauss called a way to think, rather than something to subdue, like the zebra dance of southern Angola, the Ngolo, or the animal martial arts forms that have their root in Taoist animism, or the animal poses of Hatha Yoga, or the Celtic and Nordic shapeshifters, or the shapeshifting Thracian shamans, or the Greek Mayanads. Rational anthropologists could only see this as superstition. They missed the whole point. They missed the interaction with and channeling of forces that kept the individual and the whole society in a state of equilibrium with the world. They missed the inherent reason that lives in moving like a crane or bristling with fur. They missed the reason in the rattle and the drum. They missed the reason that lives in songs that the whole society can sing. Peter Garcia, a musician from San Juan Pueblo in New Mexico, has spoken and written about the turtle dance and the role it plays in the life of the Pueblo people. And he did so with the stated intention of sharing this with outsiders, so I'm passing on some of what he said. If you've ever experienced the turtle dance as I have, it's something. The sound of a hundred rattles and a hundred synchronized pounding feet upon the earth, and the sound of a hundred voices raised in praise to the forces of nature. The dance, as Garcia explains, operates within context and serves to reinforce that context. The four directional points and the horizon line are established right away ritually to situate the individual dancer and the larger community within time and space. The turtles that are being implicitly honored are the river turtles of the Rio Grande, a river, as Garcia says, that has never gone dry. And so the dance honors that timeless flow. And the songs are specifically in honor of three varieties of tree, the Douglas spruce, the blue spruce, and the white fir, as a thanksgiving to these trees for the role that they play in Pueblo life. At the height of the dance, two opposing Tzavio, two forces of summer and winter, white and black, who've been running around untethered and somewhat wild, finally meet in the center of the village, right at the center, right at the navel. The two forces meet, and they shake hands. So the scientific mind preoccupies itself with the fact that there's no proof that the trees or the turtles actually hear the prayers. It misses the entire deep, profound, inherent rationality of a ritual enactment that places individual and community in context, that sets the four directions, that establishes the community in relation to the sounding trees and rivers and animals, and then through the power of percussive rattles and feet pounding on the earth, through the power of sweat over time and vocal repetition, takes the person into the state of consciousness in which all of these connections and relationships that exist can be felt. Directly experienced and embodied selfhood in relation to community, in relation to cosmos. There is no doubt that reason leads to the conclusion that all things are connected. All things are united, and so what we do to the web of life, as Chief Seattle is quoted as saying, we do to ourselves. Reason gets us to this highest of conclusions, but interconnectedness is more than an idea. We don't get human beings to start treating each other as one interconnected family in harmony with nature by introducing the idea of interconnectedness, by putting it on bumper stickers. Just like we don't solve climate change by giving people all the facts about climate change. In Indian tradition, a person's philosophical ideas are only as valid as their ability to embody them through practice. If there's no practice, then the idea is worthless. Values we hold as rational abstracts have to be embodied, 
or they remain rational abstracts. All the while, our behavior is exactly the opposite. Many organized religions have failed to embody their abstract ideals with devastating consequences. But the key to understanding what it means to embody ideas lives in our long history, in our imaginal and ritual vision dating back to the dawn of it all. It's in the myths and stories, breathing and humming. It's in the soles of our predecessors' feet, who spent 10,000 generations before modern notions of reason embodying a deep rationality. Ritual, imaginal enactment, in community, and harmony with nature as the most reasonable way to live. So reason ultimately leads to one conclusion, that since interconnectedness is our fundamental state, and human happiness is found most often when one feels this interconnectedness, and that short-term preoccupations are ultimately unsatisfactory in favor of deeper bonds, there's only one force in this world, it is reasonable to say, that has the power to actualize interconnectedness, to build a world that is in any way reasonable. That force, of course, is love. Reason leads us to the conclusion that in the end we must love, not as an abstract idea, but as a living, breathing, ritualized, enacted force that lives in our bones, our organs, our fascia, in our families, in the designs of our houses, in the designs of our gardens, in the layout of our communities, the governance of our cities, that is in our economic agreements and in our international treaties, that is embodied. Love embodied. Reason leads to the necessity of love embodied. Maybe, just maybe, those are some words of reason. This episode contains reference to many books, songs, stories. These include This is the Good Life, Song by One Republic, Hardcore History and Hardcore History Addendum podcast series by Dan Carlin, Since Feeling is First, poem by E.E. E. Cummings, The Lang's Fairy Book series, Blue Fairy, Green Fairy, etc. by Andrew Lang, The Opium Wars, The Addiction of One Empire and the Corruption of Another by W. Travis Haynes and Frank Sanello. Your brain is not as rational as you may think it is. That's Jesse Single writing in the Daily Beast, July 23, 2017. Vidya Sagar, that's Volume 632 of the Amar Chitrakata comic book series. The Wire, the HBO television series. Imaginal Love, a book by Tom Cheatham. A collaboration between science and religion, an essay from January 14, 2003 by His Holiness Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama. The Avengers Infinity War, the 2018 movie. Swimming to Cambodia, the monologue by Spalding Gray. And of course, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the 1982 movie cover your ears. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive, buried alive.